Welcome to the Philosophy Podcast, where host and lacrosse expert Jamie Monroe will do what he does best, talk about lacrosse. Each episode will provide listeners with education, insights, stories, and lessons about the lacrosse world. We will discuss current events, coaching, philosophies, and college lacrosse recruiting. Now let's get started with your host, Jamie Monroe. Everybody, welcome to the Philosophy Podcast, and my guest today is Patrick McEwen. He is the guy from Lacrosse Film Room, and if you haven't, uh, if you don't follow him on Twitter, you should. He's really one of the smartest guys in the game. He's uh, got a brilliant mind for analytics and really sees the game in a really interesting way. Uh, Patrick, I've followed you for a long time, and um, it's amazing to actually to watch you evolve from, I don't know, five or six years ago till now, you know, I was like, who is this guy? You know, who's this guy doing all this like video work? And he's, yeah, he's making some pretty good points. Yeah. I don't know if I agree with everything, but it's pretty good. And then over the course of time, man, you've just, uh, you're so, I, I, I refer to you as a self-made lacrosse genius because I don't, I had the benefits of working for, you know, these amazing coaches and being on the phone with them every day and you kind of figured it out on your own. So welcome to the show and thank you so much for being on. Thank you very much for that. That was a great introduction. It was probably, I hope you didn't oversell me. Um, no, I don't think so. And I'm a pretty honest guy. So people know that I, you know, I call a spade a spade. No, seriously, I, I, uh, I really enjoy watching your videos and reading your opinions and, and getting to know you a little bit on the phone and then here on this podcast. So I'm pumped up. Um, the Philosophy Podcast is brought to you by JM3 Sports. Go to www.jm3video.com to get more information on the JM3 video assessment tool. So, and I know you're pumped up because the rules committee finally uh, came to their senses, uh, from your opinion, I would say, and changed their, the rules uh, to the new shot clock. Uh, and we're going to get into that in a second, but let's talk about new rules a little bit in the NCAA lacrosse. And uh, give me your opinion on some of the exciting things, and we'll start off with the dive. How do you think that's going to make an impact? Um, I think actually one thing that people underrate the dive, um, just because you don't see very much zone in the MLL where there is the dive, is the dive is a zone buster. That when you're coming, when you have the ball behind the net, that's how you're a threat to score. Or the best way that you're a threat to score. And so you can really pinch those corner defenders in the zone down to the post just by threatening to dive. And that's going to open up uh, guys kicking it up to the wing and either forcing the, the zone to rotate or, or open, leaving, leaving shots open um, up top. And it's actually, it's a better zone buster than the two-pointer. Yeah, you're probably right on that. And it's funny because, like, the New York Lizards, they, they actually play a two-down shorty zone. The old school Tony Seaman, you know, where the shorties are down in the low, two low base spots. Um, and uh, you would think that, that, you know, they don't do it a ton, but um, – but almost nobody in college across runs that zone anymore. And yet it does happen a little bit in the MLL, but I think, but I agree with you that, you know, at the end of the day, it forces both of those shorties to get all the way down because you're going to be able to dunk it from behind the net. Um, and it's going to open up wings and rotations. Yeah. I, I didn't, I didn't do it for this summer, but last fall I wrote a huge kind of sh detailed shot clock analysis. And for that, I went and watched, um, Went and watched every two-pointer in the MLL from last summer, from a year ago. Um, and there were only two of them came against zones. 
and I was able to find two dives to score against zones. Huh. So just from from that, you two and two, and I, I looked through a, I didn't look through every uh, goal against a zone because it's difficult to kind of figure out when they're all. It's a lot of film to watch to find all of them. That is um, because there's not a lot of zone. No, well, but the two pointers I can go through the box scores and I can find, I can figure out when they all are, and it's relatively there aren't that many that it's it's feasible to watch all of them. Um, so just for, from that perspective, you know, I can definitely say that it's it's a more it's a more effective. It, it would more it resulted in more goal or just as many goals, if not more. Um, but I also think we got rid of the the like push no push judgment call. But I I am. I'm very curious to see how the diving towards the mouth of the goal, diving away from the mouth of the goal, how that call is going to play out. Because now you actually have, it's a one minute penalty instead of a 30 second penalty. So we still have that judgment call. That's a goal versus a penalty swing, depending on the judgment of the ref. We, We didn't get rid of that, but now it's almost, it potentially isn't any more clear. So the one minute penalty goes to the diver if they're diving towards the mouth of the goal. Yes. Yeah, that is going to be really – that is going to be hard. I, I was looking at – I've looked at a lot of goal. Every goal I've looked at that's been a dive lately, and I've been looking at a lot of ML footage, I keep asking myself, would that have been a goal or would that not have been a goal? And, um, I mean, sometimes it's pretty obvious, um, but other times it's going to be it's going to be tricky for sure. Yeah, and I – not that anybody nobody, – nobody asked me about this one, and this isn't, I, didn't, I didn't realize they were going to do it. Maybe I would have put my opinion out there. But my, my thought on this is I think that – when it comes to the dive in the MLL, I think they they look at the ground, but they don't look at – you're not allowed to touch the goalie before you score either. And I think sometimes they aren't necessarily watching for that. Um, and I think that also provides a little bit more objective way of both of protecting the goalie is I, would, I wouldn't have minded if they had made the rule that you can't, you can't touch the goalie before or after the goal just to protect the goalie that if and you obviously it can't be a case where you're laying on the ground and the goalie comes over and pats you on the back and say, Oh, no goal. Cause you know, you touch, you touch the goalie, yeah. but, or but if you're, hit you. yeah, if you're mom, just make, put the obligation entirely upon the offensive player to avoid any contact with the goalie in during the course of the play, which you would say the course of the play extends, you know, re- like, you know, reasonably after the play that if you, you dive and roll and take out the goalie's knees, not a goal no matter when no matter when it happened yeah um that i wonder if that would be a more objective way of differentiating between what's a safe dive and what's not a safe dive interesting the uh a lot of a lot of talk about the dive and that you know how how are you going to play people are you going to want to still slide to inside roles are you going to try to force people up the field a little bit more and and slide you know down on people um you know, are you going to have to slide more often? Are you going to have to slide earlier? Um, what are your thoughts on just how the threat of the dive is going to help create offense in man-to-man situations? Um, I think that's one that nobody knows because I think we're going to have to figure out how it gets officiated um, in terms of potential collisions with defenders in terms of I don't, I'm not really sure that anybody knows how the refs are going to officiate when, when a, a guy is sliding and somebody dives and there's a collision, how do those get called? Um, so I think there's the way that some people dive, you know, if your head makes contact with them, it's a potentially a, like a spearing penalty. Yeah. Um, or if you, you know, if you, t- I think it's one that's never get called, it's never gets called the MLL, but 
if you trip, if you dive and trip a defender, I don't know, is that like, I think you could make an argument that's a trip, that's a tripping call, right? Like if you're on offense and you don't have the ball anymore and you dive and take out my knees, right? Like, you, you know, you, you trip somebody, it could be, you could even up. There's occasionally you see off ball tripping penalties. Yeah. Um, and, and I wonder, you know, could, could you potentially see something like that? Um, and if they, if they're just not going to call any penalties on the offense player who's diving, then you have to potentially adjust the way you play defense to treat it as a bigger threat. Um, but if the refs maybe are going to call penalties on that offensive player, you potentially can, can, you know, slide in such a way uh, to, 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 I guess, keep the threat of drawing that penalty, right? Like if you're going to have a collision, if you stop and let the offensive player, you know, have their head run into you instead of your, you running into their head and you can draw the penalty, that might be, might be something we see, uh, you know, defensive players and coaches looking to do. Yeah, it could be. I mean, I think if it, the, how they officiate it is absolutely going to impact, you know, the, the value of the play. But to me, there's no question that if you kind of just – the way it used to be is that, you know, if a guy goes underneath you, you can, you can kind of ride him towards the crease and he and, and, and if you get that position on him and he doesn't get it on you you know there's not going to be much you can do and now they're going to be able to force you to overplay that underneath more which is going to allow you to roll back more which is going to allow more top side opportunities and I think as a coach you're going to have to go you're going to have to slide earlier to that uh to the threat of dives you're going to have to get over there yeah yeah definitely and Therefore, I you're just creating more offense just based on that just the fact that you might be standing in the crease you know, taking a charge on someone's dive means that, you know, you're not on your guy who might be out on the wing now because you're, you're in position to slide and help. So it's going to be interesting. I think it's going to create offense. Um, there's no doubt in my mind. Um, but, but, you know, like you said, how they officiated and we don't really know. Yeah. And I think what you mentioned, the, the sort of the fake underneath move to go back top side, that's one I think Kevin Rice used to be pretty good at it. Um, I thought, I thought Kyle McClancy, was fantastic at it this year, this past year for Albany. That I think that's that's such a great move to to get to the island and kind of rocker step to fake the inside roll and then come back topside. Um, and that's you're you're right, absolutely. That 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 move is going to be that much more effective now because the threat of going underneath is that much is that much stronger. It's it's especially great too if you can because so many defenses are coached to slide to that underneath move that you draw the slide to the wrong side of your defender when you fake it. And when you roll back top side, if you beat your defender, the slides now on the wrong side of your defender. Totally. So it's, it's, I'm glad they brought that back. Um, it's pretty funny because it was, it was, uh, you know, everyone talks about Michael Watson, Dougie Knight, and these guys who played for Virginia in the late nineties as the, you know, really the Kings of the dive back then. And then um, my college coach was Dom Starja, who uh, was at Brown when I was at Brown. And, of course, he went off to Virginia, coached all those guys. And he was on the committee like 20 years ago. It was actually 1999. So it was 19 years ago this summer that they, that they uh, banned the dive. And Dom was on the committee. And uh, I, was always, I, I always just gave him, gave him a hard time. Like, Dom, like, why would you do that? Because I was a guy that loved the dive. I mean, like, the dive is the greatest play in the game. And Virginia had it. But Dom is, like, such a good guy that I think he was basically like felt bad or something and like just kind of went with it. Cause, cause it's hard to imagine that like, you know, he really wanted there to be no dive when his, his guys were so amazing at it. 
kind of fun. Yeah, I, 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 I am somebody, I'm young enough that I, I kind of grew up without yeah. both, you know, playing and watching college, never without the dive. So I don't, I guess I don't, I don't r- romanticize it in the same that way, way uh, that some, you know, people who are a little bit older, older might. Um, but I don't, I, I, it's not, I just have, I have mixed feelings about it. I just wonder, you know, how many, how many knee injuries is it worth? Yeah. Well, I mean, honestly, I think the guy who's diving is going to get hurt more than the, <laughs> more than the goalies. Um, For sure. Yeah. I mean that you're, yeah, protect that it's that it's just how players. many, how many injuries, especially to if his guy's heads, like if it's somebody's head with a knee and you end up with a concussion or two that how, you know, um, and they're not it's not gonna it's not gonna happen every time you know that more often than not everybody's gonna get up and walk away without you know with more than a, a, a you know a knee scratch from from rubbing on the ground but um my, but, my son plays box across up in Canada every summer and when he got to junior age you know you could dive and um you know the way he would get hurt and it's on it's on concrete by the way and the way you get hurt is with them diving on you <laughs> it was it, it was like nothing really heard about the dive except for that they were going to land on you after you dove. And so that's going to be interesting to kind of see if people are going to do that. Cause like the way that you're going to at least beat the guy up is that, you know, he beats you underneath and dives and you're diving right on top of him and you're going to land right on. So that's the part that kind of hurts. Um, but uh, yeah, talk to us a little bit about your opinions on the shot clock. Obviously there was, I don't want to spend a ton of time on the, uh, on the on the on the new rule versus the old rule but why don't you touch on that really quickly why you think it's a good change and then let's get more important into like how it's going to impact the strategy of play and why this shot clock is going to be so great for us um well first of all i think it's, it's great for everybody who won't have to hear me complaining about it yeah for sure that number one um and all the twitter followers that i won't lose by complaining about it too much <laughs> um but I, it just it makes so much more sense. That's the way it works. And as far as I can tell, in every other league in any sport, in box, field, women's, basketball, that has a shot clock, it starts on possession. Yeah. Um, and it, it's just going – it makes it, it, makes it simpler um, by, redu- by removing any kind of perverse incentives to clear more slowly or to give up a clear to, to manipulate the clock. Um, you don't have to worry about that because there's no, nothing you do – the order in which you do things, if you clear first and then sub or sub and then clear, you just don't have to think about that stuff anymore and you can kind of just play. The, um, and then the, the face-off piece too is so much cleaner. What, were there like five or seven different scenarios of the shot? Oh, yeah, yeah. There was, I think, five different scenarios yeah. that were going to, to happen from face-offs. I think that, that's where, for all the complaints about specialization and face-off guys who can't stay in play, to then have a rule that basically encourages face-off guys not to win it forward. Well, not that, or not to, they want, like to win it forward, but not carry it into the box and then just to stand there with the ball while they sub. Yeah. Um, rather than trying to score by, by, you know, costing the, their, their team 15 seconds of time if they try to score just didn't, didn't make any sense to me. Totally agree. All right. So a shot clock, is it a rule for the defense or a rule for the offense and why? I think both. It's a rule for it. It's a rule that benefits everybody. I don't, you know, um, because I think the, the one of the problems that had happened um, was basically offenses were scoring too often for the for even for the offensive players that it became it was it was so easy to score that it, it wasn't worth taking risks anymore. 
Um, basically, from an efficiency perspective, people are scoring at this at you know thirty five or forty percent, and so therefore, if we're going to score, if we just hold it long enough, why would we take any risks along the way, which makes for a more boring game? And not yeah, absolutely, yeah, yep. Yeah. That that's essentially that's that's a, a perfect description. If you're going to score forty percent of the time, you, the way you do that is by not taking any risks, and then eventually you'll get something, um, and that led. It, it's, I think, boring from the fan perspective, but it's also from players that, I don't know, both offensively and defensively, I don't, it's, not, it's just not enjoyable that part of the fun is taking risks to try to score a creative goal or, you know, and, you know, and not having uh, – not being worried about right, coming over the sideline and having your coach yell at you for turning the ball over because you took a risk with it. Yeah. So and now maybe the players that can make higher level plays and riskier players are going to be more valuable than the guy who just doesn't make mistakes. Yes, absolutely. That I think um, I saw somebody listing was like, you know, way too early kind of, you know, like top Tuaraton top 10 kind of thing. And they didn't, there's kind of an obvious couple top guys um, that include, include, include a couple Canadian box guys, but then they, they had their next slide. They didn't have any Canadian box guys. And I wanted to be like, with the like you're one of the shot clock. That's who's like, why would you, if you're going to, if you're going to make a prediction this early, that seems like the easy money is on betting somebody who's played a bunch of box lacrosse with a shot clock, being able to adjust and adapt to become more valuable than expected um, more than some of the American field players. Cause creating something out of nothing at the end of a clock is going to be done in part, you know, now a little bit more so off the ball, I would imagine too, just because. Yeah. Yeah. That, that look at it. Um, that if you're if you're Albany, how great of like a plan C is it to just throw the ball at Tehoka inside? Yeah, just jam it in there. Well, yeah, or just you know, there's five things left in the shot clock. Just he runs in front of the goal and you throw the ball to him, and you know, twenty percent of the time it ends up in the back of the net. It's a pretty, you know, even if he turns the like you turn the ball over the other eighty percent of the time, but oh, oh well, you're going to turn it over anyways. There, there is no bad play. Or there, not that there's no bad play. There's there's um there are very there are much fewer bad risks with five seconds left in the shot clock than there are when there's no shot clock. What do you, what's your what, what do you think the impact is going to be on just overall strategy? Do you think people are going to play more two ways? Do you think they get more specialized? Do you think it's going to be a little bit of both? Um. So my thought on this is I, I think some people are overselling how many two way mids there's they're going to be in the sense of how many mids actually play two ways. So I think what's going to happen, what you're going to have happen is people are going to play two-way mids to avoid having to have their mids play two ways. If, if that makes sense. It's kind of a contradiction. People are going to play more two-way midfielders to avoid having to have their midfielders play two ways. So just explain that. So – if you don't want your offensive midfielders to get trapped on defense, the easiest way to stop that from happening is to play guys on offense who can play defense because then you eliminate the value to trapping them. That like a perfect example, you know, um, uh, Johnny Kelly at Ohio state uh, that during their running national championship game two years ago, ended up switching and playing short stick defensive midfielder because he's a guy who could play, they could play offense or defense right on the first midfield at some points. And, you know, obviously was one that then ended up on their, you know, the top defensive midfield pair. There's no value to trapping him on defense because he can play defense. Right. So, so with a shot clock, why, 
there's no, why would you waste your time trying to trap him on defense knowing that there's no advantage to it? Right. If you're trying to, if you're going to sub, then just sub and let him sub with you. So how's that different than being a two way? Maybe because now, because teams then still, there's still the advantage to the specialization. Yep. So it's a, it's a deterrence effect, right? Where if we play offensive midfielders who can play defense, there's now no value to trapping them. And now we can, we can, well, you'll just get subbing. There's no value to playing. You'll still have your defensive shorties, but because there's no value for trapping them, you're just going to sub, they're going to sub, and you're just going to. Right. And then you end up where just, because I think that's, that to a certain extent is what is what happens in the MLL. They don't waste a ton of time trying to trap guys because most guys are, are capable. Most, you know, most guys who have been in the league are, are capable on both ends of the field. That's why they're your MLL players. Um, and so it's just not worth it. To, well, they're getting off. No problem. I mean, most of the time. Right. Yeah. But, that, but I think mean, that's sort of what happens is, is it, you guys are capable enough that it's not worth that it's not worth spending a bunch of time trapping them. If you well, had guys, how is it even that much different philosophically with a shot clock than the way it was? Um, I mean, well, I think it's so. Some of it is the shot clock. Some of it is the box. The advantage yeah. now, well, so the the deterrent is now you that time is more valuable. It is more valuable. So you got to really decide whether you want to waste time on that or not on subbing. And I think. Honestly, even before I thought teams spent wasted too much time trying to play sub games, uh-huh. that they just didn't end up scoring on them or out of them that often. That they were they were sort of doing it because there was no reason not to, yeah. not because there was a reason to do it. Well, waste time might have been the key words in that. <laughs> yeah, that, and I mean that to a certain extent. Yeah, the refs the refs sort of mental clock wouldn't start until you they would sort of let you sub yeah. for 30 seconds or 40 seconds before they would kind of start their mental clocks to put on the shot clock and so if you then could do something that maybe even two percent of the time would result in a goal during that time that had no risk why would you not do it right but my and question then, my question as to the difference is like okay in the past you know you always had to you know when possession changes and you're going from offense to defense You've, you've always got, you know, one guy on a midfield line that's going to be able to, like, get back, you know, in the hole or in they, they kind of go to the off bench side and, and, and then you get one guy off really quickly, whether it's an attackman, nearest attackman or maybe whatever. So you get your pole on, no problem. And you can almost always get two guys on anyways. Um, and so, you know, how is that going to change now with the shot clock? Well, I think it's, it's partially the shot clock, but I think it's, it's more the, it's the box. The box because it's just going to be harder. It's to an get extra ten yards that you got to run. Um, and I think it's well. Some some of it is just um, if if there's a shift towards more two way mids, then people are going to try. You're you're equipped to try it more often. Yeah. Right. That if you if you, you try what oh just to to try to to take advantage of transition and the other team trapping prevent forcing the other team to decide whether or not they want to risk giving up transition to sub or ride or right or right yeah or ride um that if more teams are playing more more midfielders who are capable of playing two ways um at the end of the day people aren't going to want to play anyone other than their best players on offense and their best players on defense most of the time right that's that's the other thing too i think people underestimate is that with the shorter time the advantage, to, the advantage to having slightly better players on your on offense also goes up. 
No doubt. But now if you have a guy, if you're, if you're playing five on six, really, because you have a guy out there who's, who's there for defense um, on offense, um, it's that much easier to, to leave that guy with the ball at the end of the shot clock. Yeah, and also, like, you know, one, one of the things we've talked about, everyone's, like, worried about zones, um, you know, and, you know, first of all, tell us why you don't think that, that's – why do you not think zone is going to be a big deal – um, with the onset of the shot clock. Well, I'd say, first of all, I think people always underestimate how much zone was actually being played in the first place because you never saw much zone in May. Mm-hmm. That zone teams didn't really make that many NCAA tournament runs. Right. Um, and so, that, but there's like, you know, if you watched NEC and like some of the, you know, Patriot League, um, you, there, there was probably, I don't know, 30, 40% of the time teams were playing zone, I'd say across D1. Yeah. Um, it was a relatively common thing to have happen already. Um, I mean, Carolina plays zone almost exclusively against Duke this past season. Yeah. Yeah. Like, you know, it, like it, it was already happening. Um, but I think the difference is with no shot clock, everybody's zone offense was just be really patient and eventually it will break down. And I think it caused teams to teams didn't practice. How do we score against a zone in 10 seconds? Right. And if you don't practice it and you don't have any, you know, you don't have like a quick hitter zone play, it's, is it any wonder teams couldn't score against zones in 10 seconds? Cause they weren't trying to score against zones in 10 seconds. I don't think it's that surprising um, that it didn't happen. And so, so now teams are going to practice it. I think it's what it's every team is going to have a handful of, okay, you know, we shot the ball out of bounds against a zone. They switched to zone or against a zone with 10 seconds left in the shot clock. What do we do? Right. Yeah. That's no now, doubt about it. That's now going to be something that uh, gets drilled in, you know, on a week to, on a week to week basis. And so teams will just be, will be more effective in those situations. Um, secondly, if you watch the NBA, um, when, t- when the shot clock winds down, what they do, defenses don't sit back. They get more aggressive. Because right. when there's no when there's very little time left in the shot clock, the offense doesn't have time to exploit matchups. That you can switch like that NBA teams under about eight seconds left will switch everything. It's okay, great, you switched your center onto our point guard, and he's now in the post and is a huge mismatch. But there's three seconds left, so by the time you get in the ball, the, the shot clock's over. He doesn't have time to go post up, or um, you know, your, your guard against one of our big men doesn't have time to, to take it out, reset, clear out space, and drive by him. You know, you have to get a shot up immediately. So you're, you're always just more concerned about the, the immediate action than you are about the long-term consequences of what are they working towards, what, are, what switch are they going to get. That, um, you know, you could, guarding Rob Pinnell, man, you know, man-to-man for, a, like, is hard for a long period of time, but can you deny him the ball for five seconds? Sure. You know, a lot of short sticks even – you can make him work to get the ball. You have to guard him for five seconds when he doesn't have the ball. That's doable. Yeah, well, especially if you got a little ball pressure on the guy trying to deliver him that ball. Yep, yep, exactly. Um, and so playing higher pressure to take away a pass or shut something off, um, you now can pick – you now can force the offense's hand. And it, it doesn't work with unlimited time. With unlimited time, you can't do that. But with, with 10, 15, 20 seconds, you can sort of say – we're going to make you really work to do what you want to do. If you have a guy in the perimeter who catches the ball who can't dodge, guess what? we're going to shut everybody off and make him dodge to beat us. Totally. And now, 
it's, it's, it's really interesting because, you know, everyone's thinking, oh, it's going to turn into a zone game. But, you know, I remember, and I've had this conversation with a few people on this podcast, is that, you know, at, at Denver, we, John Torpy was my defense coordinator. We kind of made a decision to, to, to explore the world of high pressure defense. And um, it really did, my opinion, take us from being kind of a top 25 team to a couple top 12 finishes. And it was, we won more of our 50-50 games from playing pressure because it basically took people out of what they wanted to do. You might get scored on kind of early, but by, but by the time teams were trying to kill a game sort of mid to late third quarter, you might have a two, three goal lead on you. They started turning it over and then they wore out. But the hardest thing was, you know, I remember in the NCAA tournament, we were playing Maryland and they were just too good. We just, they could hold the ball for too long and we just couldn't, we just couldn't get the, the pressure to the degree we want. And now I look at it, it's like, okay, you know, you come in, you start to play your defense, the offense starts to set up with what they want, and all of a sudden you start to push out and pressure people. And all you have to do is be able to withstand that for 30 seconds. Um, and it's much more doable when there's, when there's no clock. So the point being, pressure, I think, in the shot clock is probably going to be maybe more advantageous than a soft zone anyways. Oh, for sure, because it, it's not quite the degree as in basketball where if you, if you play a soft zone in basketball, you're going to just get lit up by three-point shooters. And you know, in modern basketball, right. um, but against a team that has practiced to do it, we'll be able to get off a, me- a mediocre shot against a zone every time. And maybe it's going to be, and they'll be able to work towards stuff. Maybe it's like they'll just screen your goalie and take a 15-yard bounce shot. But like yeah. they'll be able to do it. They'll uh, jump in front of the goalie and shoot at the guy's feet. May come back into vogue at the end of the shot clock. Yeah, that's something like that. That you know, maybe it only scores 20% of the time, but it, if Again, you know, but which is not good enough in the notion in the non shot clock era. But in the shot clock era, if you, if with five seconds left, you can get it off a shot that scores twenty percent of the time. That might be pretty good. Yeah, that might that might be pretty good if you're able to do that consistently. Um, and that's the kind of thing that can your zone defense take away every fifteen yard shot? Probably yeah. not. That's no. that's real tough to do. Um, no doubt. Another guy, I think. That speak, speaking of guys who, who might benefit from the shot clock, uh, what's, what's better than a Canadian who's used to the shot clock that can rip it from 16 yards out? <laughs> that, that, uh, how, how, how happy is Nick Myers to have, uh, to have Trey LeClaire? Oh, yeah, no doubt. He's the end of the shot clock buster for sure. That, yeah, he, he might be. If you had to pick one guy um, to add to your team and, the, you know, to adapt to the shot clock, is there anybody better than Trey LeClaire? Yeah, seriously. And, you know, so, so really the other thing is just the ability to be multiple in what you're doing. So changing up what you're doing, making the offense, kill time, trying to figure out what yeah. to do, you know, going from zone to man, going from zone to pressure, from no pressure to pressure, going from, you know, normal just to shut, like you said, shutting guys off and just making it hard for them to operate. Um, it's going to probably require that then on the other side, the flip side, you have offensive guys that can make adjustments and make, you know, there might have been guys that could were kind of vanilla and good for, hey, listen, he can dodge downhill. Um, you know, he can bang a shot. He's, he, he, he knows, you know, we can count on him. But now all of a sudden there's like all these things happening and you, I have to have probably more skill sets and, and, and more ability to do more things. Ideally, you're going to be able to do more things as an offensive player against defenses that are going to be changing up on you a lot. Yes. Yeah, that's going to be – the defensive scouting report is going to be – her game plan is going to be how can we take advantage of offensive players that aren't versatile? 
that yeah. how how can we stick somebody force somebody to do what they don't want to do with 10 seconds left in the shot clock and i think that's going to be so it's going to be changing things up so the the offense doesn't have time to adjust um is how they'll do it and, and it will force offensive players to be more versatile which then is i wouldn't say it's contrary to two-way players uh, but it doesn't necessarily make you think that's going to happen as often simply because they're usually not, if they're two-way guys, you're, they're not necessarily, they could be just as good, your best offensive guys, but likely they're not. Right. That I, the, the value to playing your best six offensive players is still there. Yeah. It just reflects itself a little differently. Um, and you look at the guys who then become the most valuable are like uh, guys like Joel Tinney. Yeah. Who, who couldn't play two ways and is one of your best offensive players. Um, sure. Now, we now become, come absolutely, you know, become, become much, much more valuable. And I think you potentially you'll get um, as a result of that, maybe a swing back kind of away from attackmen uh, and maybe in the Tuaraton awards. You know, it's pretty funny is that you're the Joel Tinney and, 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 and these guys like this summer, Jalen Shastri who played for the Adonax and all these guys that are like basically back gate guys in box that actually have great hands and can play offense, but they play Ian McKay. box. What's that? Ian McKay, Sean Rogers. Yeah, exactly. Ian McKay, Sean Rogers and, and uh, uh, Tutton, you know, all these yeah. guys, back gate guys that are like, you know, all Americans because they actually have great hands. Um, are going to be some seriously valuable guys. Jeff Slater was kind of like that for me. I mean, he was a back gate guy, really. Uh, we've, we've talked about doing it, never did, but I always have the, I think it'd be hilarious to do a once a year podcast with Steven Stamp where, where we talk about Canadians who play NCAA and yeah. just react. Like he'll talk about them as box players and I'll talk about them as field players because yeah. we, we, we've done it a couple times and just you find out things and they're like, wait, really? Like, I don't, like it's some of them just aren't believable. Yeah. Like he once described Sean Rogers to me as a stay at home defender. <laughs> and I was like, wait, what? Like, yeah. And Chad Totten too. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, wait, he, he's like, he's, you know, he, he runs the offense for one of the best, uh, you know, for like a top 10, top 15 college lacrosse offense. He's their yeah, go to yeah. guy. It's pretty funny. Uh, the Philosophy Podcast is brought to you by JM3 Sports. Go to www.jm3video.com to get more information on the JM3 video assessment tool. What other, what other strategies do you see sort of coming on as it relates to the shot clock? Um, is there any other things that sort of come to mind? Um, I think you're going to see more involvement of close defenders in the transition game. Um, I, think, I think you'll see – you'll see a higher priority placed on that in recruiting of, of close defenders who can handle the ball. Um, and that's both with the 20 seconds to clear and the shot clock. Um, and I think with something we we've, we've talked about um, that there's, there's some sub games you can play if you use close defenders in the role of a midfielder to clear the ball and down in transition, because then the midfielder can go sub and you basically can, can push transition with a close defender who's staying on the field and sub simultaneously. And then you force the offense to either you force the offense to pick between keeping their offensive midfielders on the field to prevent transition or having them sub so they don't get trapped. Um, and I, I'm curious to see, it's something that happens by accident in the MLL. Um, and I have, I did confirm that with a couple guys that that's not, it's not planned. That's just, it's kind of what happens when you, 
when you play a guy who can handle the ball like Brody Merrill or Jesse Bernhardt at close really? defense. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's not. It's not. Uh, they they really don't don't have much of a plan when it comes to transition. That's not what they prioritize at their practice time. Uh, well, not, yeah. They just have so many guys who can handle the ball, you know, that it, you don't really need to practice it. It's just sort of, you know, throw it to whoever, whoever's open. Uh, you know, when, when three of the guys on the field are college coaches, they can kind of just figure it out. Yeah. The scenario, um, the scenario is so really interesting, though, and you sent me a video clip on it, and it was the game-winning goal uh, of Denver versus Chesapeake in which uh, – uh, Lyle Thompson takes an outside shot. Dylan Ward makes a save, throws it to an off-bench low defender, sort of an inning out, catches it, and he gets up the field. And three attackmen from Chesapeake are basically trying to ride that ball, but it, but this defender is able to run past the, the attackmen that are kind of going to the off-bench side. A shorty ends up having to play him. Another pole goes over, and a shorty's on him, and a shorty goes over, and a shorty was on him. Right, so three shorties ended up getting stuck back on defense, and then all of a sudden they all started subbing off. Well, right. Well, so the 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 the, the offensive the offensive midfielders got stuck running with yes. running with close defenders down the field to so stop two, two, two poles and a short. I think right. Wasn't that what it was? Yeah, I, I think it was. And then meanwhile, the defensive midfielders were, were sub were able to sub, but because the attackmen were riding, right. they weren't subbing with those. They weren't they weren't doing the like the reverse fl- like swap. In subbing, so what ended up happening is Denver had uh, had Mikey Schlosser waiting at the midfield line when that close defender ran back, and the Chesapeake offensive midfielder matched him, ran back with a Denver player. But the problem was there was no defensive midfielder waiting for him at the midfield line. Right, the Chesapeake attack hadn't gone off in time. Right, to be able right. To get a, a, a defensive personnel to run on with Mikey Schlosser, which would have been so he caught it wide open. It ended up being a four on three fast break created by the sub game because Chesapeake or because Denver had used their close defenders in a midfield role and Chesapeake hadn't sort of matched by using one of their attackmen in a, in what you would, would think of as a, as a midfield role um, in, in the, in transition. It doesn't always happen in that case. I think what set it up was you had all three attackmen were chasing the ball to the far side of the field. If you know, if you have an attackman who's caught, who ends up high box side, most of the time their instincts are just to run off for a sub anyways. Yeah. And so, so your point though, is that, Hey, if you're, a, if you're, you know, there's going to be more value on really skilled close defensemen that can push transition and you're going to be able to start playing some of these games, especially if teams struggle in really identifying the difference between riding and transition. Yep. Yeah. And I think that's lessened a little bit by the change to a shot clock that starts on possession. Yeah, because um, there, there's no longer kind of the 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 big swing between pushing transition versus a settled clear. Right. You're no longer investing an extra ten seconds of time in the choice to push transition. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, but it, it still is val- uh, it still is potentially valuable to to be able to save if you can push transition, look to push transition and sub simultaneously. You end up you can hang people up, or they can't ride. Right. Right. Well, you, that happens, but just just the just being able to, to pursue both both of them simultaneously is going to save you ten or fifteen seconds every possession. Versus, uh, or I mean, if you just choose to sub rather than push transition, you obviously you don't get that opportunity to score. Um, you're going to have fewer. Your offense is going to be less effective because it's it's yeah, it's an extra look you don't get at the at scoring if you if you are just going to sub rather than look look to score in transition. Um, so there's there's still plenty of advantages to it, and I, I wouldn't be surprised if you see some teams 
uh, move guys who we think of as LSMs down to close D for that purpose. Or, or in recruiting ways in the future, um, it's, it's happened occasionally, um, but to see more guys who are short stick midfielders in high school being moved to long pole, to, uh, even to close defense because of their ability to handle the ball. Right. It's like all the Canadians. I mean, you know, Brody Merrill is funny because I remember watching him play for Orangeville when he was like 17 years old in junior A lacrosse back in the summer of 99 or 2000. And I was like drooling over this guy. Like, I mean, this guy's going to be a 40 goal scorer. And someone was like, yeah, I hear he's going down to Salisbury to play pole. I was like, what? Pole? He's going to be a defenseman? This guy is like 6'4", top center on the power play for Orangeville as a like, you know, 17 or 18-year-old. So, um, but all those Canadian guys that handle the ball so well, you know, it's a pretty big advantage. Now, let me ask you this. Do you, with, the, with the rule change going from 20, then 60 to 80, is there still a, a, a count of 20 to get it over, right? Yeah, yeah. The, the clearing rules, that's what I think is something people didn't understand is the shot clock, if it, start, if it starts on possession and the clearing count, those, those are totally separate things. You can do whatever you want with the, yeah, the advancement yeah. rules. Right. Um, I mean, the NBA's got, you know, a count to get it over the – Yeah, every, every league does. That yeah. you have basketball, they, there's a count. It's an eight-second count in the NLL. Right. Um, that it, it's pretty – and it, actually, it's – when you think about it, the ratio of time to get it over versus, like, total shot clock time is less um, in college lacrosse than it is in any other – in basketball or the NLL or in MLL. Comparatively, yeah. Yeah, that it's only – it's 25 – the clearing time is 25% of the total shot clock. So that, that reset length, um, it's, the, it's a smaller sort of reset bonus than it is in, in, in other sports. Got it. As opposed to like one-third or something in basketball. Yeah, which is something I think the committee didn't fully – one of the aspects of it they didn't fully think through uh, the first time and one of the reasons for the change. Yeah. And that, so before we get on to uh, resets, because that is an interesting topic, but – do you think there's going to be more riding or less riding? What's your What's your opinion on on the on the value? Because to me, it seems, and I would like to see this the analytics. Because it used to be that there was a 20 second clearing clock, and then it turned to this basically 30 to get it in. I, I think you have better chance to get the ball back, you know, in 20 seconds at the midline than you did with 30 to get it in. Um, I, I think 30 to get it. I mean, I heard the buzzer go off on TV all the time on the defensive half, but they still had 10 seconds to get it to the, into, to touch it. Do you think right? There's going to be more of an emphasis on riding less of an emphasis on riding, or do you think it's going to be the same? Um, that's a good, I'm not totally sure. Cause I think it will depend, but I think you'll see is you'll see teams clear differently. I think you'll see more teams will be more aggressive about kind of clearing it in the, the initial chaos that with 30 seconds, what you basically had was, because you, you had that buzzer, was if there was nothing, if there was no guy wide open, coaches wanted to be conservative. They were like, okay, just hang on to it. We'll sub, get our, get our guys on, and we'll run our settle clear and allow X's and O them on the clear, and we'll get somebody wide open. Now I think you'll see coaches, it's, if a guy, if the guy doesn't have to be wide open, if he's just open, go ahead and toss in the ball on the clear, kind of push it down the field. Um, and that's also you'll see, kind of using, using close defenders um, involved in the clear, that if an attackman is going to go jump the goalie, right, there's an open guy somewhere. And under the old rules, people weren't necessarily trying to use that close defender to get the ball to the midfield line. Right. It was more just an outlet to hang on to it to buy time so we can sub and get set up. Um, where I think now you'll teams will just look to push the ball in the field more. And 
the other advantage, if you clear quickly, that's an extra 10 seconds you have on offense now. Yeah, exactly. Over yeah. In five, oh. If you hit the ball over in five seconds, you have 75 seconds of offense versus if you take all 20 seconds, you're down to 60. Um, yeah. And so there's, there's extra, just another great thing about the possession clock. Now uh, the clock starting on possession, there's an extra incentive to, to clear the ball quickly. And so yeah. I think you'll see teams look to do that more, which might mean that you'll see fewer settled clears, which then makes it makes riding less valuable in that sense. Um, so, so it's, it's tough to say, I guess, how those effects kind of play off against each other and if one mitigates the other or how that plays out. I mean, generally speaking, it's funny because it's hard to even know how important riding actually is to winning games anyways. And I think that there's, you know, there's certain, certain teams that put a lot of time into riding and certain teams put less into riding and, you know, in, in individual circumstances, you can always point to, Hey, you know, a, a, you know, a ride got us the ball back in the game that we, you know, we needed that ball. We scored on that and we won the game and that ride was huge for us. That 10 man ride in the second half of the championship game. Um, and on the other hand, you know, I know of programs that have been the best riding team in the country and yeah, they, 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 they don't necessarily, it doesn't manifest itself maybe in, in overall efficiency and possessions even, you know, yeah, what if, go ahead. so some of it is with the way the game had evolved so many, so many fewer possessions started with clears because there were more goals uh, and fewer possessions. So face-offs were, were increasingly like we're in, were of increased importance. Yeah. Um, and so that will change a little bit. You'll get more cl- you'll get more clears and ride, riding opportunities per game. Um, but I think the big thing is that it, it, it's not the deciding factor just because the difference between a great clearing team and a poor clearing team or a great riding team and a bad riding team is so small. Right. But if you're a bad riding team, what do you write it back at? Maybe six, seven, eight, 10% of the time. And if you're a great riding team, maybe you get to 20% of the time. Right. So you're talking a difference of about you'll you'll cause a turnover on 10% more of clearing opportunities. Uh, even if even if clearing opportunities go up and maybe each team is clearing the ball 20 times per game, that's still that's two possessions per game. Yeah. Which, like, it, is it good to have two possessions per game? Yes. But are you gonna win? Are you gonna win or lose? Like, are is you, are you gonna go from an average team to a champ national championship team on the basis of two of getting two more possessions per game? No. Um, Our efficiency is going to be much more important uh, as as compared to faceoffs. Um, in other words, like you know, can you live now with like a lesser faceoff ability? Yes. you definitely will be able to. Just because more possessions will start. I guess, it's. I guess it's, I should say you'll be able, defense will be able to make up for a bad for a, a for a subpar faceoff guy in w- more effectively than they used to be able to. Right. Um, that like. The example, the, the Syracuse team that made it to the national championship game and lost to Duke, basically on the basis of a top five, top, top eight type defense, making up, getting them possessions that their faceoff guys couldn't get. Um, they were able to be effective that way. You'll be able to see more teams like that that can, kind of, can make runs late, late in the year. It's kind of like a box across where, you know, they, sometimes they don't even care about having a faceoff specialist on their team. You know, I mean, it's yeah, like, yeah. That it's nice you, to have it, but at the end of the day, if you can't score, it doesn't even matter. Won't be to that extreme because in box, I mean, you're talking you're talking offensive efficiency. They're so much lower. Yeah. I, I don't think you'll see offensive efficiency decline to that level. Um, but it will certainly it will it will be it will trend in that direction. 
real quick, a lot of people were worried about this, um, you know, a, a reset of 80 seconds. Um, why do you think that that's uh, important or not important? Well, so first of all, um, under the ice, it will happen more often because there'll be more possessions. But under the old rules, it's only happening an average about three, a little over three times per game per team. Um, was less than 10% of possessions resulted in, in a reset. Um, so you're, there's not that many to begin with. And then secondly, you have to consider that just because you get a reset doesn't mean you're going to hold the ball for 80 seconds. You're going to look to score as soon as possible. And so even under the old mentality rule, is always going to be trying to score now as opposed to hold the ball. Right. Right. And even under the old rules, 75% of possessions were, were less than 60 seconds. The majority of possessions were less than 60 seconds. And that's going to increase under the shot clock because you're, you're going to take the first available shot. You're not going to spend 40 seconds subbing and all that, you know, right. stuff like that anymore. Um, so the, the odds that, somebody takes 70 seconds to shoot the ball, gets a reset and then takes 70 seconds to shoot the ball again. It, you know, it's, it's just, it's going to happen so infrequently. Only at the end um, of games. Right. And see so that's, that's the one exception is that at the end of games, when teams that are ahead are trying to kill the clock, then they're intentionally waiting to shoot till the end of the shot clock. That's when you'll see it. Um, but I, I, it just, that's going to happen. So, you know, it's just not going to happen all that often. Yeah, and you can't make it happen either. Like in box, you can kind of like shoot it and try to get the reset. But in the field, you'd probably be better off if you're winning the game. You're probably better off getting your defensive personnel on and rolling the ball in the corner, anyways. And so, or just trying to score. I mean, that's what you'll see more of. That's what so that's what happened in the women's game. Is now with the one goal lead in three minutes left, you were trying to score because they were gonna, they were going to get the ball back regardless. So yeah, yeah. So better they get the ball back with a two goal lead. Really, the way you can stop them from getting the ball back is to score and win the, win the faceoff. That's exactly right. Yeah. So if you're, if you're trying to not let them have another possession, the way to do it is to score. Um, and does that mean that you go down and take a bad shot in 30 seconds? No, but if you have a decent shot with 25 seconds left in the shot clock, even if you're up late in the game, now you take that shot. Yeah, no doubt. And then learning how to be a deceptive shooter and, and, and you know, being able to just, you know, somehow – score a goal it's going to be huge yeah yeah I, I, I'm, I'm curious to see how often though teams do do elect to roll a ball into the corner yeah it's gonna be well I mean I think you know in, in the in the MLL the issue is and, and it's going to change in college for the reasons that you said you, people are going to be people are going to want goalies that can get the ball up and out better you're going to work on it it's something you're going to practice but man that ball came down your throat if you turn it over in a bad way in the MLL you, you're probably getting scored on you know, if a goalie catches your shot, it's coming down, it's coming right down your throat and it's really hard to defend. Now the quality of play is not going to be as high in college cross as it is in the MLL, but I think it will develop to the point where, you know, you just can't afford to take a bad shot that they catch, even though you're trying to score. So that's kind of like where there's a little bit of a question as to whether people are going to roll in the corner or whether they're going to try to score at the end of the clock. Yeah. It's some of those just don't, don't shoot it high stick side. Yeah. That if you put it low and away, right, even if the goalie makes the save, it's much harder. Not clean. Yeah. It's like, yeah, yeah. That it's, even if it's clean, it's, it, you know, it's going to take you, it, it takes you longer to make that save and then come up, come up, you know, uh, totally right. come up, up throwing it than it does with some high stick side. No doubt. Hey, talk to me a little bit about one of the things before in our email exchange, you know, leading up to this call was talking about the value of time with a shot clock slash efficiency. 
as a function of time left on the shot clock. Talk a little bit about what, the, what, what that means and, and, and how that's going to manifest itself. Yeah. So um, one of the ways, one of the questions um, that I think you're, you'll see coaches come up with sort of different answers to early as they kind of adjust to it is how valuable is it to do something early in the shot clock that eats up five seconds of time that if, if uh, we know we can, we press out and deny a pass they want to make and, you know, make the, say the face off guy stay on the field for five seconds longer before he can pass it and sub and get off um, or something like that early versus and at what point does that become valuable? And the, the, the answer to that question lies in understanding how does the value of that five extra seconds change as the shot clock winds down. And obviously it gets, it get it, it, it becomes more important that having an extra five seconds is more valuable when you go from five seconds left to 10 seconds left. Um, than it is when you go from 20 to 25 and then going from 20 to 25 is that five seconds is more valuable than going from 50 to 55. And so the question is just how, how valuable, how much more valuable is it late in the shot clock than early? And so determining how, how much do you care about wasting time or preserving time early in the shot clock versus, versus late? So, and part of that is, you know, we talked about this a couple of weeks ago when the rules first came out because there's a lot of coaches that were thinking about employing sort of zone trap uh, rides, uh, rides that, you know, were occurring kind of like the way uh, Richmond rides a lot, for example. They, they basically kind of jam up the middle of the field um, and, 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 and it will force you to kill a lot of time just to get the ball into the box, even though you might get it over the midline, but then all of a sudden it's, it, there's, there's double teams and there's pressure and um, it's just going to kill a lot of time just to like get into your offense. And that was where you first said, yeah, well, we don't even know how valuable that is. It's probably less valuable now with, with a 80 seconds on possession rather than 20 and 60. Right. Um. Yeah, I mean, well, because when you get the ball over the midfield line, you'll have more time than before. That if you'll get, you'll have over sixty seconds if you if when you get it across, rather than exactly. Right. Um, and so that that it certainly is less valuable in that sense. But it's just, but but I don't, is there a big difference between sixty five and fifty five seconds left? And that's where right. I, there's a there's definitely a difference. And that's kind of kind of one of the things you have when you're trying to estimate that going for you is you know that more time's always better. Um, and we know that um, that it, it grows. If you think in terms of calculus, uh, the the first derivative gets smaller the 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 more time on the shot clock. So the second derivative is negative. Um, and it goes through the origin. It goes through zero with zero time on the shot clock. The odds of scoring are zero. Which um, is not quite true because of the because of a buzzer beater, but but. Um, What's the uh, what 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 are some of the stats on efficiencies with with time and possessions? Do you have any idea on that? Well, but the problem is none of the data. The problem is it's not data. It's a tricky thing to measure because the data from past seasons won't help you because um, you're not trying to look at how how does efficiency change over the course of a possession in a game because um, it should be higher earlier because of fast breaks that like the great scoring opportunities will, will tend to come early. And if it's not there, there's kind of a lull before you kind of get your best offensive players onto the field to be able to really run your offense. Um, and so that's not, that's not what we're talking about. We're, and we're talking about it. It's, you can only measure it when there's a shot clock. You can only measure how do, 
how do offenses adjust when they see 50 seconds counting down versus 20 or 30 or five? Um, Now you have a plan that you mentioned that you're going to try to work with some college coaches during the course of the fall to try to get data to try to start figuring some of this stuff out. Is that what you were talking about? Yeah. I'm going to see if I can, it's an idea I've had uh, um, to see if I can pull off kind of an anonymous data exchange, get some coaches to, to, to measure that data and then send it to me and I'll mix it up and anonymously send it back to them all. So they have the, have kind of a baseline to see how their, their teams compare and to kind of get a sense for how it, uh, for how that value changes um, across all different teams. Why would it be, why would a coach benefit from sharing his data with you? Cause the big picture will be really valuable for them and their decision-making processes. Yeah, that's the idea. Well, so since it's, it's shared, it'll be, it doesn't really help you that much for scouting in the first place, because uh, I mean, you know, somebody's offense might be better than, you know, it, it doesn't help tell you how to exploit it or anything. Um, but if you're just, it'll be, if it's, um, well, the, the relevant team information is stripped out anyways, um, then that's, that's a, a decision when you know how valuable it is at five seconds is early in the shot clock, you can know that it's not worth messing around trying to, to waste time or waste the other team's time or preserve your own time early in the shot clock versus how to, that potentially end up in a situation where uh, the odds of scoring with 30 or 35 seconds left are 90% of what they are or 90 or 95% of what they are with 60 seconds left. In that case, all you need to worry about is get your best guys onto the field with 30 seconds left to run your offense, and you'll be good to go. Yeah, great point. Um, so, so Patrick, you, you, in one of your notes to me, you talk about ground balls, and you mentioned they go from overrated to an underrated stat. What do you mean by that? Um, I think 20, 30 years ago, um, you had a lot of coaches. Ground balls win games was kind of a popular, a popular mantra. Um, and that I think people, because people underrated efficiency, people were kind of overrating some things like ground balls and their importance in winning games that we didn't, we didn't have an understanding of, of kind of possession and efficiency and how that stuff worked. And so uh, ground balls were kind of a, a crude measure of how, how many possessions did you have and how often did you have possession. And as we kind of developed better measures for that, just by, by counting possessions directly, um, ground balls have kind of fallen out of favor as kind of a, something that we talk about in terms of their importance. But wouldn't they be, I mean, if you were at a 33% efficiency, wouldn't a ground ball be worth a third of the goal? No. Okay. Uh, it's tr- so it's tricky because, um, so in some, it, I guess it depends on the context in which it happens. Some of the tricky parts about ground balls and why they're, they're kind of a bad stat is so if on offense, if you drop the ball and pick it up again, mm-hmm. what have you done? Nothing. Sure. You're back in the same, you're back in the same spot you were. So it, it, the ground ball, you can only think of the ground ball as being worth something as worth a positive. If you have a corresponding negative to go with it. Um, and that's not a stat people keep. I, I think it's one, it's one I would like to see that I think you ought to have, um, call, I call it a drop. But anytime the ball comes out of your stick and ends up on the ground, it's not a shot uh it's a drop and regardless so if you pick up you pick then pick the ball up you get the ground ball but you also get the drop so it's a net they cancel out and you've done done nothing that's something something i've we thought uh back in the day on my high school team we used to all the defenders the 
would we'd all tell each other the, the guy whose dad the guy whose dad was the spotter for the stats for the stat keeper would give him a ground ball every time he dropped it and picked it up again. Technically, it is a ground ball, so I I agree with that. So so they get skewed on that particular play. Yeah, um, and I think there are the, the other thing to understand though is that as we've kind of evolved more, our understanding of possessions has become better. Is ground balls don't just matter in terms of possession. They actually, they impact efficiency. Because if the offense drops the ball and on defense, you can pick it up, that's a stop. Right. And so you not only get, get got the possession, um, or you have a possession, but you stop their team from scoring on their possession. So you've, you've increased your possessions and lowered their offensive efficiency. Um, and similarly on offense, if you're better at picking up the ground ball when you drop it or when there's a rebound off the post, your offensive efficiency is going to be higher because you'll have another crack at scoring. And so, so ground balls, you know, they end up in kind of, it's convenient to think about things in terms of either, either impacts possessions or efficiency, you know, like face-offs impact possessions and, you know, shooting percentage impacts efficiency, but there's, they're all connected together in a lot of different ways. Um, and ground, ground ball ability is one of those ways, ways that they're connected. Um, and I think, where there are better ways of me of measuring ground ball ability um, than just kind of the old the the conventional box score method you just count ground balls. Um, I think adding drops is part of that picture because then you can know do doesn't do offensive guys are do they get a lot of ground balls because they're making up for other teams teammates mistakes or do they get ground balls because they're always the one who drops it and so they're always around the ground ball because it came out of their stick. Yeah. Um, Knowing that kind of thing would be important, as well as I think, um, I uh, I think we can look at things like uh, ground ball percentages. Look at like when on the defensive half of the field, when there's a ground ball, how often do you does your team pick it up? Um, or or on offense, kind of you can just kind of split things into defense and offense to get a better idea of your personnel. Because um, if you, if your team has possession all the time, maybe your your poles are great at ground balls, but if your offense is the one dropping it all the time your poles really never get a shot at, it, at picking up the ball. Or if they get scored on all the time, there's no opportunities because they can't put the ball on the ground. Or maybe your long poles have a bunch of ground balls because they're always the one putting it on the ground. They just are bad at picking it up, but they just make up for it by, by putting it on the ground so often. Or maybe your face-off guy's terrible, so they get a ton of opportunities because the ball's always down in your defensive end. Do you think there's more value to a ground ball on a, on a face-off wing or face-off ground ball than – um, any other type of ground ball? No. There's so you can think of it as in general as kind of a, a first cut estimate. You you have basically three states of the game. You either we have the ball, nobody has the ball, or they have the ball. Um, so in terms of the tricky part is so like ground balls are just one component of a play. The most valuable ground ball is a turnover. Is one that happens on a turnover. It, it, when you kind of think it reduces of, their efficiency and it gives you possession. Right. It goes from when they have the ball to where we have the ball. That's the biggest swing. The face-off, on a face-off, it's only a swing from nobody has the ball to we have the ball. So it's only, it's only half of the same swing. The tricky part is that some of those turnover, some of those ground balls that are correspond to a turnover, there's a cause turnover. And so you, you're double counting, which is a, a tricky thing to kind of figure out um, in terms of a statistical analysis is, is – is how do you – because you have some cause turnovers, but there's no ground ball. 
by taking the ball, your sticking goes out of bounds. It's a turnover. It's caused turnover. But there's no ground ball. Or if you pick it off. Well, I know if you pick it off, that's a that's a ground ball. It's caused turnover and a ground ball. But stack keepers don't always don't always. Physically, uh, if, if if I intercept the pass, yes. that would, that's that would be a ground ball. Yes. Really. Yep. That should be statted as a ground ball when you when you pick off a pass in the air. Yes, it's a cause turnover and a ground ball. Yep. Hmm. Um, and, and there's, you know, there's situations um, uh, with a goalie getting up a rebound. Usually yeah. the, the differentiating factor is if the ball ends up outside the cylinder, they'll give the goalie a ground ball. But what's better than having the ball go outside the cylinder is if it stays in your stick the entire time. You get to save, but no ground ball. Yeah, which is, ends up being a better – but it's really a better play than having a rebound outside the crease that you go and get. No doubt. Um, interesting. And so I, it, it's a, it is an interesting area of, um, of kind of lacrosse analytics that, that we haven't delved quite enough into yet. As we sort of wind this down, Patrick, are there any other sort of uh, thoughts that you think people – I mean, we have a lot – there was a lot more on our list to talk about, um, but are there any last sort of uh, – points that you'd like to share with, with, with folks that are listening to this that might be really interesting. Um, yeah. I think, uh, so kind of where we're going with that on ground balls. Um, that is one of, one of the deficiencies of lacrosse stats is that we don't, we don't have a complete accounting system for possessions. I think it's, it's just kind of an accident of the, of the things that people picked as stats um, that conveniently basketball has ended up with one where every possession ends in a turnover or a shot and there's either an offensive rebound or there's not. So they, you can kind of look at the box score and get a great picture of, of what happened on the way every possession ended or started. Whereas in lacrosse, that's not really the case. And I think it's something, it's something that we ought to look at fixing. Um, it's adding, adding kind of filling in some of those holes about whether, whether a save ends up resulting in a change of possession or not, or a, a shot that's out of balance, you know, who is it backed up by? So that the, the box score allows for a, a, a complete accounting system um, for possessions. So that's back to that sort of negative positive thing on every play. Um, in a way, in a way, and that's, that's one, that would be one element of doing it would be that, yeah, if you're going to give out ground balls, what we do now, you need to give out, there needs to be some connection in the box score to how, how the ground ball is, how the ground, how there ends up being a ground ball. Whether it's especially on the shots, like all right, they they take a shot and now it's the other team's possession because they didn't back it up. Um, but that should be a turnover, but it's not listed as a turnover. Well, what? so it's, I would say I don't think it should be a turnover because who's the turnover on? Uh, on the attackman, it should have been backing it up. Okay, well then I think that's the one thing I have to say. It's a good difference between there's some stats like that where I'd say if you're the coach, if you're coaching a team, I you can make that determination but do you want stat keepers like up in the booth, SIDs making that determination? Probably not. Um, because it's, it's such a judgment call that depends on, on, you know, your kind of evaluation of the play. That's, I'd say it's a stat coaches should keep, but I think in terms of, in terms of um, official stats, I w I'm not sure. I'm not, I don't think it's wise to assign blame to any particular individual player for not backing up the shot. I think you could you could mark note note that which players took the shot that wasn't backed up, just because that's an that's an obje that that's an objective. You know that's. Well, we're not arguing the point that it is a turnover. Uh, well, it's it's a change of possession. I don't know that it should be. I don't know that you. Uh, 
I don't, I don't know that I, I don't like denoting it as a turnover just because I think it's something different. Why, why wouldn't you want the turnover stats to be separate from that? I don't know because I think it is a turnover. And so well, it's, a, it's, a, it's a change of possession. It's a change yeah. of possession. Is the it, shot that gets saved a turnover? Is what? If, the, if, if, the, if you shoot the ball and the goalie catches it in a stick, is that a turnover? Yes. <laughs> Spoken from the opinion of a coach. Well, it's a change of possession. If yeah. you, you've just, all you've, done is, all you've done is taken turnover and made it mean change of possession. And so you've, you've lost the specificity of what turnover means. Like in basketball, it's a missed shot, right? And so you know that missed shots result in a change of possession unless there's an offensive rebound. Mm-hmm. And so if you just called it a turnover, you now wouldn't know whether it, whether it was a missed shot or like a, 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 you know, a bad pass that went out of bounds or was stolen or something. Having that knowledge, that detail in the box score is helpful. It's useful information. So yeah. if you just make every time that the ball ends up with the other team, it's a turnover. You, in one sense, you've now you've counted like possessions that end in without a goal, but you lose any sort of information about how that possession ended without a, how that possession ended. Yeah, well, it's interesting stuff, man. Because I mean, at the end of the day, it's like to be able, everybody really needs to know what their efficiencies are, and it's hard to know what your efficiencies are if you don't know exactly how many possessions that you have and without going back and just watching the film and counting your possessions or going through the play by play, it's really hard. And that's kind of your overall point here is we got to figure out a way to really. Yeah. Yeah. To add all that stuff so that you can look at the box score and just be able to know how many possessions you had based on the stats. And then um, you can say, okay, well you scored 10 goals and you had, you know, 40. Right, we had three shots. We didn't back up and there was, you know, 17 turnovers and uh, eight clean saves by the goalie. So you can know, like, you know all the different ways that your possessions ended. Yeah, exactly. Um, that's, that's also more useful information than, right, like if you have 10 turnovers and the, go- you, the goalie had 12 clean saves and you didn't back up seven shots, well, you then can know where our passes are good, we're completing our passes, we're not dropping it. The problem is when we shoot it, we're not getting, we, you know, they end up with it a lot. Yeah. As exactly. a result of our shots, which isn't, isn't good. Um, yeah, yeah. Well, Patrick, listen, I really appreciate you taking the time. It's always interesting talking to you. Um, um, fascinated with your opinions on stuff, and I think a lot of people will be too. Um, do you have any, uh, any final words for, for our listeners here as far as stuff that's coming down the pike, things to look for on your, on your at, uh, at lacrosse film room or on your YouTube um, channel you want to like, get out there? Not, not right now. All right now, just thanks. Thanks for having me on. I enjoyed it. Uh, maybe we'll have to do do another of these to wrap up some of those other topics. Yeah, we got a lot more to talk about. But uh, listen, Patrick, have an awesome weekend. Thanks for the time, and um, I'll shoot you this when it's done. It sounds good. Thanks. All right, see ya. The Philosophy Podcast is brought to you by JM3 Sports. Go to www.jm3video.com to get more information on the JM3 video assessment tool.